0: All right, good morning, guys. My name is Matt. I'm going to read uh, the scripture for today, and it's long, so I'm going to ask you guys to all stand up. Uh, We're going to be in John 7. So uh, if everyone can stand and follow along with me here at John 7. I'm going to read it with as much uh, gusto or gusto as I can. So um, here we go. All right, John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, and it worked. And I testify about it that it worked. That its works are evil. You go up on, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone to the feast, then also he then also went up. Thank you, Emery. Uh, not publicly, but in private, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, "Where is he?" And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you the circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, it is not that... Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, and he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, uh, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they'd heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does, your, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Such and see that no prophet arises from Galilee.
1: Thanks, Matt. Have a seat, guys have a seat. Hello, my name is Bert. If we have not yet met, uh, I'm one of the pastors at Anthem, and I am delighted to be opening up the text with you. Can I just say real quick, like, I know it maybe is a little bit weird for some of us to have large portions of scripture read out loud, and especially to stand for the word of the Lord, but I think there's something actually really special and beautiful about when we do that together. And so uh, just know each and every week as we're in John, we're having someone do that. So if you want to be one of those someones, let someone know. Let Steve know. Or me. We love to have a bunch of voices up here. Turn, if you would, if you're not already there, to John chapter 7. While you're doing that, I want to say hey to everyone who's gathering online. I try to remember to say that because I know there are people who gather with us online, but sometimes it feels like a black box, the internet. Uh, But I know for sure uh, Sherry, my wife, and our kids Calvin, Truman, and Emerson are watching online. And so I actually know there's at least four people that I know of that are watching. So hey, guys. Good morning. Uh, I bet you're still in your jammies. Um, But anyway, uh, so delighted to be here with you. Thank you so much if you're gathering with us online and stoked for those those of you guys that are here in the room. John chapter 7. We're in John 7, and uh, I've sort of, maybe this is just more for me, I've sort of like given a, 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 a kind of a title to the last couple of chapters we've been in, See and Believe, because Jesus has been doing some really wild things, and he's been saying some even wilder things, and it's all in aid of forcing a decision for people who are around him. Am I going to actually believe Jesus is who he says he is or not? Now, here's the thing. Jesus has been doing lots of healings and miracles. So people are confronted with the supernatural invading their everyday lives. And that once again forces this question, will I believe Jesus is actually who he says he is? And John chapter 7 takes place over the course of a really important week in the Jewish calendar, the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tents. And this was a week-long feast. It was a week-long party. It's a week-long time to remember when their ancestors, I mean, great, 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 grandpas and grandmas wandering out in the desert. It was a time when they remembered the wandering and how God provided for them in the wandering how we provided food for them, how we provided water, how we protected them. And so the Feast of the Booths is this week-long moment to celebrate God's provision. And this was one of those pilgrimage feasts that so lots of people are moving towards Jerusalem to celebrate. You didn't just celebrate in your home, but you actually went into the city and you celebrated with other Jews. People would travel from all over to celebrate this week-long feast together. And the narrative in John chapter 7 opens with Jesus' own brothers asking him if he's going. This is sort of like you and your buddy saying, hey, are you going to the Christmas Eve service? Are you going over to mom and dad's for, for dinner afterwards? What are do you doing Christmas morning? This is one of those moments in the calendar for the Jewish people. And his brothers are saying, Are you headed up? Now, of course, the backdrop to that question is Jesus has been doing and saying some really wild things. And so in Jerusalem is a collection of a whole lot of people who have heard about him, who've maybe heard him teach or seen him heal. And the crowd is murmuring. People are wondering, people are talking about him. Is he here? Is he coming? Do you think he's going to come? What's he going to say? There's a stir about this Jesus. And as his brothers are asking him, there's almost a, it's not just an ask, but there's like a bit of a a push and a prod and a challenge to prove that he is who he says he is, as if his works weren't proof already, but to go public, basically. And say, are you ready to go public with this whole Messiah business? His brothers didn't believe him, the text tells us. John makes a comment and says his brothers didn't actually believe. So this is not a good faith, are you going to Jerusalem? This is a, come on, bro, go show us who you really are. How many of you guys got brothers in the room? How many of you guys grew up with brothers? How many of you guys taunted brothers or got taunted by a brother? This is what's going on. Jesus had very real-life brothers who were giving him a very hard time in this moment. They didn't believe, and they thought this kind of publicity where everyone who was a serious Jew was going to celebrate this feast would actually see him for who he is a fraud. And so they want him outed. So once again, those around Jesus are forced with this decision, will we believe, and we know believe in the book of John is this really robust word that means to align our whole lives around, not just like an intellectual pop quiz, but align our whole lives around Jesus and this life he's calling us to. And in our text today is that very same question. I hope you notice the repetitive nature of John. Last week, the week before, John 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all these will you believe moments. And for us, in kind of a Western culture, a little bit later, it feels repetitive because we think believe is just an intellectual yes or no. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Okay, cool. That might have been a census question that you just answered. It's a form you filled out It's say, oh, well, at least I'm in this group and not that group kind of moment. But we know from John so far, believe is to reorganize your entire life around the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. And so the tension in our text today is will you actually believe in a way that changes your life? Thousands of years later, we're faced with that very same question that those around Jesus are facing in John chapter 7. Will we believe, a.k.a. rearrange our entire life around the reality that Jesus is the Christ and that means something? And I would imagine many of us in the room would kind of our knee-jerk reaction would be to say, yes. But it's one of these things John just does not let go of through his narrative. With his recounting of interactions with Jesus and particularly the religious elite, John reveals to us that head knowledge is not enough. Like head knowledge about Jesus is not enough. This is not an intellectual exercise for John, but a whole life commitment that he is pushing us towards. Now, the religious elite were challenging Jesus because he was disrupting the status quo. He was disrupting the status quo. He was disrupting social dynamics of the day. And more importantly for the religious elite, he was disrupting the power dynamics. They had had this nice cozy relationship where they were top dog. And suddenly someone is coming in to disrupt all of that. And one of the things you're going to notice in the face of very real evidence that Jesus, at the very least, has got some crazy supernatural things going on they are far more concerned about his breaking of their rules than he is of maybe some of the bigger questions like, why is this guy healing blind people and people who can't walk and stuff? This seems pretty crazy. We should kind of take notice of this dude who's healing people that we've seen for decades. It just Dude is laying here lame and blind and can't hear. And suddenly Jesus comes along, heals them, and they're concerned about Sabbath breaking. Those around Jesus, particularly the religious elite, and whenever we read into the Pharisees, we can read those who should know better, those who are immersed in the scriptures and should have been the first to see Jesus coming. Those around him were concerned with a couple of things in this text. Successism. High-achieving culture, money, career. Even his brothers are saying, go prove who you are. You can almost read behind the lines saying, he's either going to be proven as a fraud or he's not. And guess what? We're his brothers. Successism. Go prove who you are. Elitism. Elitism. I'm better than you. I'm evolved. I'm progressive. I know better. See this in the life of the Pharisees. How can this man teach? He hasn't even been through our training program. How does he know this stuff? And confronted with the reality of secularism as the religious elite. I don't need God and the everyday stuff of life Focused on the here, the now, the naturalism, the materials, and the literal material things of this world. And so when someone comes healing, you're like, I don't even have a framework for that. You're breaking the rules. I can't even look at the healing because you're breaking the rules that we have set up. And maybe if we're being honest today, we might see more of ourselves in the religious elite in John chapter 7 than we do with Jesus. Where Jesus comes and breaks a paradigm in such a way we're like, I don't even have a framework for this. I can't, I can't even think about it. Or maybe he disrupts what we expected Jesus should be like and we discount him. Or we think Jesus hasn't provided the things I thought he should provide, so I don't know if I can trust him. Now, while the form of our issues is new. Well, we're wrestling with individualism, hyper-isolation, careerism, social media, some of these things that are unique to our moment in time. The temptation to be suspicious or reject Jesus because he disrupts our status quo is not a new thing. This is an age-old problem that every generation has had to deal with with Jesus. The, the facade of those things may look a bit different but the temptation too to be to be suspicious of or outright reject Jesus because he disrupts our status quo is not a new problem. Look at me with John chapter seven, starting in verse one or so. There's kind of two moments uh, where we see Jesus getting called out. One is in private with his brother, these private displays of suspicion. And then the second part is going to be these public displays of outright rejection. And the scene that we're in today opens in a place where Jesus might have found the most support, his own brothers, his family, his homeland. But his brothers are suspicious, which in a way kind of makes sense. Because if we think about if you have brothers, our relationship with brothers, they're the most likely to give you a hard time about everything. If your sibling was claiming to be the Messiah, you'd have some questions, right? You might be the least likely person to actually believe because it's like, dude, I grew up with this guy and he took my toys. He can't be the son of God. How would you respond if one of your siblings came to you one day, Josh, I have something to tell you? I'm the son of God. You'd have questions, right? immediately you'd have questions about what's going on here. So I can actually kind of identify with the brothers in this moment. I got two younger brothers that are um, extending adolescence beyond what I know is possible. And if one of them said to me, I'm the son of God, I'd be like, oh, I have some serious questions about your life right now. I hope they're not watching. So I kind of identify with what the brothers are doing right here. You'd be pretty resentful. You might even be more resentful if you saw his perfection than if you saw his flaws. Because suddenly you had someone to be compared against for your entire life. Jesus always unpacked the dishwasher on time. On the first ask, he always took out the trash right away. I was always being compared to Jesus. Like, that's rough. That's rough. If you're his brother, that is a rough spot to be in. I can appreciate that. And even like my sister growing up was definitely like A type. She did everything the first time. She did it right. She did it perfect. She always had straight A's. She was this overachiever type of person, and I grew up being compared to her, or at least comparing myself to her all the time. And for me, that didn't make her, you know, didn't make me her biggest cheerleader. It made me resentful, right? Because suddenly I wasn't stacking up. I can kind of get what's going on with the brothers here. But they challenge him in verse 3. Leave here. Go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret, Jesus. Come on. If you're really the son of God, go do it in the open. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Open up that Instagram account. Start recording some stuff. For not even his brothers believed him. Those closest to Jesus did not believe but their suspicion doesn't say private, it goes public. Starting in verse 14, we have this long account of not just private suspicion, but public rejection of who Jesus is. He is the talk of the town, and clearly the disbelief was not limited to his own family in that private moment. But the whole of Jerusalem had heard about this Jesus and was evaluating, discussing, and debating who this Jesus is. In verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. Where's Jesus? And after there was much muttering about him among the people, well, some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. There's this back and forth, evaluation. Yet for the fear of Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So just imagine this like undercurrent, this muttering, little whispers here and there. Did you hear about, is he coming? What do you think about him? I don't know about him. He's a little sketchy. Oh, I think he's really, he healed my cousin over there. I think he's the real deal. This murmuring all around the city. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and started teaching. So he goes from very private to very public right away. He teaches, and the result is people marvel. It's like, oh, shoot, this guy's got words. He's doing stuff. People are marveling, but they wonder how someone untrained can teach this way. Hold on, he didn't go through our schools. He didn't go through our hoops, our training. He's not from a high enough family who would have sent him to the good schools. How does, how does he know what is going on here? They wonder how someone untrained can teach this kind of teaching, and their elitism has been exposed and reaffirmed at the end of the narrative, where there's some bias against those backwater Jews from Galilee. They're up in the north, the rural territory. They're not down in the city center where we know better, they're out in the sticks. Galilee's like the Bakersfield of California. I don't know, man. Do they even have good schools out there? How does he know to be teaching this way? They're just kind of rednecks out there. So Jesus comes in from the backwater of Galilee to these high-minded centers of power in the city for those who know better. Because they're enlightened, they're progressive, they've thought this out, they know better. And Jesus, not mincing words here, claims his teaching and authority comes not from himself, but from the Father. More fighting words from Jesus. And in fact, they've been missing the heart of the law for the letter of the law. This whole business about circumcision of Moses, Jesus is exposing... Right, that they're getting lost in the weeds here and they're missing out on what God is doing. And these interactions are enough to provoke the same question we've been asking for the last couple of weeks. Is this actually the Christ? And if so, do I believe him? Is he the one everyone's been talking about and wants to kill him? What do I think about him? Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. What do I think about this Jesus So they start in on their investigation. Where did you come from? Checks notes. Oh, yeah, Galilee. I don't think so. Nothing good comes out of Galilee. It's weird up there. You guys aren't as educated as we are. You guys aren't as cultured as we are. You guys aren't enlightened as we are. You have a little bit of a twang to your accent. I don't know about this. Galilee. And verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Okay, no one will know. So as Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me. You know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Jesus is ratcheting things up here to level 10. He's saying the God you think you know so well, you don't even know at all. Because if you did, you'd see me coming. I know him, Jesus says. I come from him, and he sent me. But Jesus doesn't really engage in this fact-checking. There's more business about Galilee and Bethlehem at the end of the narrative. And if we actually knew better, if they actually did their fact-checking, they'd know he actually was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling all these prophecies of old. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, by the way, guys, remember those prophecies from Isaiah? I actually fulfilled them. You should check your notes on that one. No, no, he doesn't even engage in the fact-checking. But he goes right to the jugular and says the Father has sent him. You should know better. He doesn't engage in the fact-checking. That would actually prove his claims. Instead, he redirects attention to the Father. And he says, not only do you not understand where I come from, you don't understand where I'm going. Verse 33, I will be with you a little longer than I'm going to him who sent me. Who is he talking about? The Father. I'm going to be with him who sent me. I'm going to go be with the Father. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And they still don't get it because they're asking like, wait, where are you actually going to go where we can't find you? we got people everywhere. We can find you everywhere. They're still missing the big point here. They still don't get it. It's subtle, but notice how Jesus exposes here, how concerned they are with the details, the letter of the prophecies and the law, that they miss what God is actually doing. They're so focused on these little intricacies, that they actually miss Jesus completely. And instead of focusing on God, they're focusing on their little world. Those around Jesus missed him because they were focused on successism, perform for us, Jesus, go public, Jesus, expose who you really are, Jesus, They are focused on elitism. Oh, he can't come from that place. He hasn't gone through our training hoops. He's not from the right place, so he can't be who he says he is. And secularism, missing the godly force for the worldly trees. Now, the question thousands of years later, we have to ask ourselves, after working through that narrative, do we do the same thing? Do we continue to miss Jesus because of all these roadblocks we put in the way? Jesus' brothers wanted him to show off and prove who he was. And Jesus frequently confronts people who don't actually believe but are just looking for a sign, Matthew 16 tells us. How often do we do the same thing to Jesus? Okay, Jesus, I'll really believe you are who you say you are if you just like, help me pay off this bill that just won't go away. I'll really believe if you just heal this ailment that's been plaguing me for years and years and years. How often do we want him to prove himself to us before we believe? How often do we want him to meet us on our own timetable before we actually believe? How often do we want him to show up when I want him, but not really when he wants to? Come on, Jesus, I'm just in line at Prospect trying to get my coffee. I don't want to talk to the person next to me. Come on, I'm just trying to have a nice, polite Thanksgiving dinner with my family. I don't want to talk about the stuff that just got brought up. Come on, Jesus, I'm at work. I may get fired. How often do we want him to show up on our timetable Okay, Jesus, you've got Sunday, 10 to 1130, but at 1131, I'm out of here. And if you don't show up in that window, my stomach is going to get me out the door. How often do we expect him to overcome all our doubts and questions before we believe, instead of meeting him in those doubts and questions? Where do we ask Jesus to prove who he is, just like his brother's? How about this issue of elitism with the Pharisees? The Jews in Jerusalem were offended and discounting Jesus because of where he came from and what he was like. Pharisees in Luke chapter 6 see Jesus heal someone. They're not so, uh, so much concerned about this person who could heal really strangely, but concerned that they're breaking the rules of how one should operate on the Sabbath. We know that from the New Testament, one of the primary pushbacks of those awaiting the Messiah was Jesus didn't fit their mold of the Messiah. They see this humble, homeless, itinerant Jewish rabbi and, like, no, 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 hold on. We need someone who's on a horse. We need someone who's going to, like, overthrow Rome. We need a political leader. We need someone who's finally going to bring about the right laws. And instead, this scruffy, humble, homeless, itinerant, preacher is collecting disciples, casting out demons, and healing people. And people are like, no, I don't know about that. Nonviolence? No, no, no. We need a warrior to overthrow Rome. Love your enemies? No, no, no. They've been oppressing us. I can't love my enemies. Give to those who are in need. Be generous. No, no, no. This is mine. What I have, I own. How do we discount Jesus? Because he doesn't affirm our cultural or personal values. I don't know, Jesus. If you were alive in Ventura in 2021, I think you'd be all about this too. Come on. It's, you know, it's 2,000 years later. We're more evolved now. We've got the hang of this thing. Like, maybe there are some, like, outdated and irrelevant parts. You know, Jesus, come on. Get with the times, Jesus. We're, we're enlightened now, you know. And this Jesus walked around 2,000 years ago. You know, the world was different, Jesus. The world was very, very different. We, we know better now. The writer George Orwell said this, quote, Every generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it and wiser than the one that comes after it. Jesus, you know, we, we've got science now, Jesus. Like, I'm sure that the healing could be explained by some other means. You know, we've made a lot of discoveries, Jesus, that really, like, answer all the questions that people had years and years ago. Or how about a straight-up framework of secularism on the part of the religious elite? The Jews were searching for worldly answers to a godly problem. Who is this Jesus? Where did he come from? What does he mean that we can't find him with where he's going? Where is are we looking for a worldly explanation of Jesus? And maybe that gets demonstrated in our lives by like, if we got something to come up, we don't go to him in prayer first. You know what? I got this headache. I'm going to take the Advil first and then I'll pray for the headache. You know, I got this financial issue. I'm going to, you know, chat with some wise people who know something about money and try to figure this thing out before I pray and ask Jesus. I got this big decision. You know what? I'm going to just like, Get some other things together. I'm going to do my own research on the internet, which is foolproof, and then, and then I'll pray about it later. Where are we not trusting that he can and will actually intervene in a supernatural way in our everyday natural life? Where, do we, where are we walking around with this naturalistic, materialistic worldview that says all of life can only be expressed in what I can see, hear, touch, smell, see? That was the other one. The skepticism of the supernatural, even among Christians, is one of the primary reasons we actually don't see the supernatural anymore. We don't need it. We don't want it. That may be good for that third world country over there because they don't have running water and electricity. But you know what? Ventura is pretty nice. And we never say those things, but this is how we live. And so, if something does kind of creep into our lives that's even a little bit supernatural, we're very sketched out by it. What do you mean? You got healed? No, no, no. God doesn't heal people anymore. We got doctors for that. What do you mean you heard from God? We have the Bible. We don't need to hear from God anymore. Many of us fall into the same temptations and maybe even sinful postures as the religious elite Jesus interacted with. Now, the good news is that the gracious invitation from Jesus is not necessarily to have all your questions answered or doubts overcome or pushbacks addressed, but to actually just be satisfied by the only one who can satisfy. Do you guys notice in that narrative, Jesus did not really provide any helpful answers? Now, there, you know, I beat up on the Pharisees quite a bit. There might have actually been some good faith interactions here. We don't know. There might have been some people who were like, you know, I don't want to be confused, Jesus. Would you just tell me who you are? And he's real coy and he's real vague. He doesn't really answer the questions. And it seems like the stuff he says creates more questions and more doubts. Did you guys notice that? And maybe the invitation from Jesus is not to have every question answered or every doubt overcome, but to just meet him in that tension. And maybe through some of those questions, those doubts, maybe some of, through that skepticism, Jesus will be gracious and kind and meet us in that place. Meet us in that place by satisfying us with the only thing that can actually satisfy our desires. So looking at this text, how does Jesus invite us into a different story? And invites us to even maybe ask different questions. Instead of searching for the successes improve yourself, the elitism, oh, I don't know about this, he doesn't look like the way I thought he would, or shaped by secularism that said, God doesn't actually do stuff anymore. Jesus points to satisfaction as the answer. The back end of the narrative is all about being sustained and satisfied by Jesus. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, this is the climax of everything here. The great day, the text says, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This whole... Feast of the tabernacles and booths is a bit of a callback to John's intro in John chapter 1 when he said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt can also be translated tabernacled. It's like the verb form of the place where God meets us. The word became flesh and tented with us boothed with us, tabernacled with us. This is the very feast they're celebrating that God met with them and provided for them while they were wandering in the desert. And now John is the one saying, Jesus is the one who comes and tabernacles with us, booths with us. He meets with us and provides for us and sustains us. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle, John tells us, because he came and actually tabernacled among us. Moved into the neighborhood, Eugene Peterson says in the message, in flesh and blood. And in his grace, it is not a threat from Jesus, but it is an invitation into a different kind of story. If anyone thirsts, this open invite, anyone. You know what the Greek word of anyone means? Anyone. (laughs) It's, It's everyone. There's no conditions on that. It's not a conditional descriptor. Anyone thirsts. Anyone thirsts. And this is call back to John chapter 4 and the woman of Samaria, where 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Speaking of this well right here, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Should have titled the sermon Thirsting for Jesus. Anyone who is thirsty, if anyone thirsts, come to me. Whoever believes, this is different. Okay, anyone who thirsts, this is all y'all. This is anyone and everyone. Anyone who believes. This is a clarifying moment of commitment. Anyone who believes. This is a clarifying moment of commitment to reorganize your life. Everyone's thirsty. Only some are going to believe. Anyone believes. Out of his heart will flow... Rivers of living water. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit that has not yet come yet because Jesus has not been glorified yet, but it's his promise. The living water is God the Spirit dwelling, tabernacling with us in the everyday stuff of life. Thousands of years later, Jesus is still tabernacling with us. So these rivers of living water. Anyone is thirsty, there are rivers of living water up for grabs. What wedged right in the middle is whoever believes, a clarifying moment of commitment to reorganize your life around who Jesus says He is. For those, their thirst will be satisfied in the living water, that is the spirit with you. For those who don't, you're going to be thirsty for a long time. You're going to be keep going to other wells that keep drying you out. You're going to keep drinking from stuff that makes you thirstier than when you started. Because you're looking for satisfaction in wells that are not Jesus himself. This is what Jesus is saying. You want to be satisfied? Come to me. You're still going to have questions. You're still going to have doubts and pushbacks. If you want to be satisfied, come to me. You don't come to me? You'll be thirsty for a real long time. Jesus invites us to have our ultimate thirst quenched in him and be filled with the Spirit so we can reorganize our whole life in pursuit of being with him, becoming like him, and doing what he did. But the story doesn't end there. With maybe, if we're on a first read, with an uplifting, albeit maybe a little bit vague encouragement to go and just believe a little harder, that would be a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here. As people around Jesus take his claim seriously. I hope you notice that from the text in John so far. No one's not taking him seriously. People are very much taking his claim seriously and are maybe just deciding poorly in some circumstances. We see the fallout from such a sweeping declaration. The religious elite are clearly not buying it. But whatever their motives are, they are taking his claim seriously. And it said, there's division among the people. Others said, this is the Christ. Verse 41. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? and another rabbit hole to chase down. There's division among the people. Whatever their motives are, they're taking his claim seriously, and it's forcing a decision moment in their life. What do we think about Jesus? Are we taking his claim seriously? And if so, what is the life Jesus is calling us into? Because spoiler alert, it's probably not going to be the way things were. Why were the Pharisees so mad at him? He was upsetting the status quo of their life. Power structures, traditions, social dynamics. He was coming and putting everything in a blender, and they didn't like that. I would imagine many of us don't like that either. Because saying yes to Jesus will put your life in a bit of a blender. Some priorities are going to be rearranged in your life. Some relationships are going to be changed. Do we want that? Because I guarantee we're all thirsty in the room. We're all looking for what satisfies. But not all will actually believe and reorganize their life around this radical commitment to Jesus and his life for us. I don't want to leave you hanging, though. So is there a practice or maybe a next step that could discipline us towards seeing Jesus for who he is and actually finding our satisfaction in him? So I'm going to assume 100% of you all in the room and those of you watching online are on board and say, yeah, I actually want to be satisfied in Jesus. If that's not the assumption, I'd love to chat with you. But I'm assuming this is where we're at here, that we want something that will actually satisfy, right? We're actually thirsty and we're ready to say, yeah, Jesus, what does this actually look like? Is there something we can do to index our hearts towards a thirst for Jesus instead of the things of this world? I'm going to give you guys a practice here context. How do you start your day? Simple stuff here. If you've been hanging around me for any length of time, you're not going to hear anything new. I, sorry. (laughs) There's no new revelation here. How do you start your day? How do you start your day? Wake up. Do you have a phone near you? Do you have an alarm clock near you? Do you have a watch near you? Do you have kids? Are they interrupting you or are you getting up early? Do you have books, Bible next to your bed or do you reach for your phone and start scrolling? What does the beginning of your day look like? What do you start filling your mind with right away? Emails, social media, texts? No, no judgment. I'm just curious. Actually, imagine you in your bed right now. What's next to you? Are you one of those people who, like, your spouse has to wake you up or you have the alarm and you're up first? Like, where, where are you guys at here? Because I, I think one of the, the way we start our day actually matters a lot. Because the daily battle for who gets your attention and affection does not start after that first cup of coffee when you're ready to engage the world. It starts when you do this. And there's already a battle for your attention and affection immediately. So by the time I actually roll out of bed, you know, drink my coffee, brush my teeth, hop in the shower, get changed, and walk out my door, there have been a thousand voices trying to form me into something or someone. Good voices, Sherry, my wife, my kiddos, bad voices, anything that's on my phone, you know? So, for us, one of the practices that we've instituted in the Alcorn house a long time ago is Bert does not sleep next to his phone. Sherry's more mature than me, she can handle it, I can't handle it. Our, my phone sleeps in the kitchen, like the farthest point from our bedroom. If you've been to our house, it's the opposite end of the house. I parent my phone, it goes to bed before I do, I wake up before it does. I have a wake time away from my phone. I tell it what to do. It does not tell me what to do. I love those do not disturb. There's all these different like filters you can put on or when you get notifications when. I'm not mature enough to have all that stuff off. I have to have it on. Because left to my own devices, I start scrolling something immediately. Emails, texts, news, social media, whatever it is. And I immediately start getting formed by all that stuff. Now, I know this may be a problem that is more... uh, 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 I don't know, painful or precise for my generation or maybe those who come after me. So those of you who are wiser in years, maybe are not prone to this as often, but how you start your day actually matters. So how do we start our day where we can stay thirsty for Jesus and start our day with him and have him be the first voice that's forming us in the day? Okay, three levels right here. Starter, okay? If you're brand new to all of this, here's a starter practice. Before you get out of bed, and definitely before you look at your phone, pray through Psalm 23 or the Our Father prayer in Matthew 6. Take one of them, write it on an index card, throw your Bible with you. Just, it'll take you like 30 seconds. It just does not, I'm not talking about like an hour quiet time before you get up in the morning. I'm not talking about 4 a.m. wake-up calls. Just let the first thing you do is be formed. Psalm 23 or Our Father prayer in Matthew 6. That's it. Pray through it. You can pray through it slowly, meditate. Cool. If you just want to like put it to memory, so it's kind of rolling around your brain, that's awesome. Have it on a little index card, read through it, and that's it. If you want, have your Bible handy, write it on an index card, whatever. You can take your pray, uh, take your time, pray through each line, or just like have that be your regular rhythm. First thing, the Our Father prayer, Psalm twenty three, starter. So if you're brand new to all of this, that's a great place to start. Maybe more baseline, like especially if you've been walking with Jesus for a little while. Start with a few minutes of listening silence. Wake up. Read a couple of psalms. Write down a prayer you might have. Spend time listening to God or what he might be saying or a passage of scripture he might direct you towards. If you feel something welling up in your heart or prayer that needs to be prayed, pray it or write it down or any of that stuff. And then, you know, bonus, work through Psalm 23, or the Our Father prayer as well, all before you get up. Like, don't even take the covers off yet. Just lay there. A few moments of listening silence. The Our Father, Psalm 23, maybe a couple of psalms. Write down a prayer. In practical, I'm talking like five to ten minutes here. Not, not revolutionary. You're not becoming a monk and moving to a monastery, all right? Just five, ten minutes. Now, for those of you who already have a great rhythm and maybe you want to level up a little bit, start with a few more minutes of listening silence. If you can handle this, kind of discipline yourself to, like, actually be still and be quiet for an elongated amount of time. Maybe five, ten minutes of just silence, listening. Work through a Bible reading plan if you don't already. I kind of oscillate between uh, a couple. One is I'll read the Bible in a whole year, and a couple of us from our church are doing that together, which has been fun. We're in Luke now, which feels great. We spent like two-thirds of the year in the Old Testament, and, dude, hanging on to Jeremiah, I was like, oh, Lord, please help me. But we got through it. We're in the New Testament now, and it's beautiful. Kind of when I'm not doing that on normal years, I'll start with a few psalms and a proverb every single day. Not connected to anything I'm teaching or writing or training or anything like that. Just a few psalms and a proverb. Be shaped by the word of God. Direct our attention to him. And pray through the Our Father in Matthew 6 or Psalm 23. A couple helpful practices. Customize whatever you want, but just a good starting point to discipline and index our hearts and minds to be shaped by Jesus. Because if we do that, our thirst for him will be increased and our like quenching of that thirst will happen as well if we're disciplining ourselves, to be with him before anything in the day starts. Now, because of the work of Jesus to bring us close to him, we'll reconcile our relationship with God. A story like this, like Jesus here, doesn't have to strike fear into our hearts. We don't have to leave here, like, downtrodden and, and worried that we identify with the Pharisees and, oh, no, like, we're stuck in this pattern of sinfulness or secularism or elitism or whatever But because of what Christ has already done, a story like this spurs us on towards greater commitment to reorganize our life around following Jesus and having our ultimate thirst quenched by his presence because we know the work he has already accomplished has provided the spirit in our lives so that we can engage him in this. So this is not impossible. To be honest, it's just improbable that Christians will actually believe Jesus is who he says he is and we'll meet our satisfaction. Might I challenge you to not believe it's impossible, but to know it's improbable and fight the odds. Let's be a couple of churches here who are starting our day with him, slowly growing our thirst for Jesus, trusting that he'll satisfy us. I'm going to pray for you. The team's going to come up and we're going to work through some response here. And if you would, wherever you're at, uh, just kind of have your hands open in front of you. This is just like putting your body in a receiving posture. Jesus, we want to receive from you. We do. We want to receive from you. and, And Jesus, we want to want to receive from you. We recognize that our desires are all disordered. We have all our priorities in the wrong places, so we want to receive from you, but help us want to want to receive you, maybe even at the expense of something else, maybe at the expense, something really small of just like picking up our phone in the morning. Help us want to want you. Jesus, you promise that everyone is thirsty, everyone's looking for satisfaction. And you promise that anyone who believes will be met with your presence. And so, Jesus, as we take a few moments in response of maybe reflection, maybe training our hearts, maybe singing these words, maybe out here like encouraged to go further or maybe encouraged to start something, Jesus, I pray in your grace and your kindness that you would meet us here in this moment. That as we just direct our attention and affection to you, we would not leave unchanged.